Well, I have bad news and good news and then bad news again. The bad news is my car died on me. Now, I know if you've been at Radiant since, we've, since day one of uh, when we came about two years ago, you'll know that uh, as soon as we moved here, I had a truck that I loved. And my first day in Indiana, someone T-boned us and uh, wrecked it. I got out and said, yeah, we're brand new. And he goes, welcome to Indiana. So it was a really nice guy, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I went and bought a, I bought a sedan, a sensible family man vehicle. Uh, so I guess the good news is my car is, is wrecked, or my car is dead, and I get to buy a truck now. So everyone <laughs> praise the Lord with me. <laughs> Yesterday, Heather and I were on our fifth, kind of fifth test drive of a truck, fifth test drive of a truck, and um, I was doing most of the driving because it'd be primarily my vehicle. I said, honey, you've got to drive this. You've got to drive this. So I pull over, I hop into the passenger side, and we start going. And I realized as I sat there, the price sticker was right in front of my face. And I could not handle it. I was like, I was praying. I was like, Lord, if you could come, come now. Like, I don't know what my wife's thinking about my assessment of her driving ability. It's, it's probably bad enough when there's not a sticker and I'm sitting in the passenger seat. Oh, amen. Uh, <laughs> But when there's a big sticker and I can't see a thing, I, I just, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of last week's message. Like, you remember the big idea from last week's message? We were in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 11 through 15, but the, the idea was this. Your marriage's biggest problem is that you are a sinner married to a sinner. And as I sat there in my seat, I thought, Lord, I am a sinner. Jesus, take the wheel. I mean, that was just one of those moments. Like, I, I have to be in control. I can't, you know, like, that's probably our biggest problem is that I'm a sinner married to a sinner. I'm more of a sinner, right? Okay, anyways. <laughs> so last week we talked about this idea of, of, we went to a passage that's not even a, a text about marriage. Isn't that crazy? There's all these beautiful texts about marriage. And I'm gonna talk about those in a little bit and why they are important. But what we're dealing with today and what we dealt with last week was our heart, our selfishness. And that idea was our biggest problem is that your marriage's biggest problem is that you're a sinner married to a sinner now, while most of us know that's true, or all of us know it's true, most of the time we fail to live as if it's true. We are sinners married to sinners, but yet we kind of don't necessarily do anything about it other than just hope for the best. We kind of coast, hoping and wishing that when things aren't good, that maybe they'll just get better. Almost like we don't know that we're sinners married to sinners. See, if we coast in our marriage, it's potentially destructive, and it's certainly dangerous to the relationship. Here's the deal. You will never live, if you're married or not married, whatever, uh, you will never live a day specifically in your relationships, whether it's with others, but we're kind of focused in on marriages. You'll never live a day together without an act of thoughtlessness, self-interest, anger, arrogance, bitterness, and even disloyalty. Now, often they're low-level moments. Often those thoughts, those, those uh, self-interest words that we say, they're, they're low-level. Maybe your spouse is so used to it, they don't even recognize it as being selfish. They don't recognize you as being a sinner in those moments. But here's the deal. If you're a sinner married to a sinner, and it happens every single day, that thing begins to accumulate, does it not? The seeds that we plant over and over again you plant a thousand seeds, you get a forest, right? So if we are a sinner married to a sinner, then hoping for 
the best is just not enough. Now, I understand as we start this message or that there are people in this room in different places. There are married folks, of course. There are people who are single. There are some who are single and ready to mingle. There are some who never again will, will, will walk down the aisle. And there are some who are saying, is this message applicable to me? I remind you that what we're going to look at is biblical truth. And biblical truth, not even a marriage passage, biblical truth that applies and is transferable to all relationships, friends, family, and coworkers. I do want to say this because this kind of came up a little bit and Heather and I's conversation last week, there is no judgment here for anyone's status. If you, if you had been div- uh, married and divorced, do not feel like this message is, is, is Kessie. We're not talking about any, the past at all. We're talking about today and moving forward in my current relationships, specifically in the marriage context, but do not feel whatsoever that, that anyone's judging anything that's happened in the past. God got that. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I got to say that this message is directed towards Christians, and I'm glad that you're here. I hope that you find this helpful, but I believe the truth of this really is applicable when you are a believer in Jesus. So I think my heart for you is to hear the message of Jesus and the gospel that we will, that the reason we've gathered in this message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me again to one of these non-marriage passages. Actually, it's the same exact passage as last week. I know crazy. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And as you turn, let me give you some context once again, just a reminder. Paul and the Corinthians are not getting along. They've had exchanges back and forth. The Corinthians were offended by Paul's frankness. Uh, There are those who oppose Paul very openly. Some people who call themselves super apostles, they were far more appealing to the Corinthian culture. That was very, you know, we're talking Greece here, ancient Greece, very, very um, big on uh, beauty and knowledge and, and those things. And Paul was pretty wimpy, just an itinerant preacher. Now, last week we looked at, uh, we went up to verse 15. So we're going to pick up at verse 16. But let me just remind you what verse 15 said. Because this sets the, con- this sets the where we're going. He died for everyone so that those who received his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, he will live we will live for Christ who died and was raised for him. And from that, we saw that the old life is that selfish life. And while, while we live a new life, we continue to walk in selfishness. None of us have arrived, have we? If you have arrived no longer selfish in your new life, then I will yield the pulpit to you. Okay, I didn't think so. None of us have arrived. We kind of live between the now and not yet. But we'll get into that in a second. Let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 starting in verse 16. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, how different we know now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to himself. Remember, let me just stop. Remember, Paul is defending his ministry here. Um, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sin so that we can be made right with God through Christ. 
let's walk through this passage really quick, and then we're going to stop, and I want you to take a second look at it. But first of all, what we see here, starting in verse 16, is this idea. He starts with so, referring back to where we've been. The old life is gone. The new life has come. We, we were selfish. You know, we live in a new life that's not oriented towards selfishness, but yet we can still live that way. The Corinthians were living that way. Part of the reason that they had a strained relationship was the way the Corinthians were going about and living, and we're going to get to what Paul says they should do about that in a couple of verses. But verse 14 and 15 describe what it means to live for Christ. And then in verse 16, hey, we stopped seeing others when we live for Christ. We stopped seeing others from a human perspective, just like we stopped seeing Christ from a human perspective. We used to see Christ from a human perspective, but we no longer do that. And as a result, we don't see others from that same perspective. That's why he says, how differently we know now. What a change Christ has made. And then verse 17, a beautiful verse that, honestly, if I was just preaching this passage just in general, we would camp here. But you'll see where we're going to go in a second. Verse 17, let me read verse 17 to you. Why don't you go home and memorize verse 17? This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Your Bible says new creation, perhaps. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. Paul is saying that when someone belongs to Christ, it brings about a dramatic change to their life. The, a new creation, a new being, a new person. Remember the context is, um, he sees things, you see things differently. We used to see Christ a different way. From the human perspective, no longer now. We, now we don't see others from the human perspective either. A new creation has a new vision, a new way of seeing the old is gone, the new has become. There's a new nature, a new value system, new behavior that takes place with this new nature that we are given, this new life. Romans 6, Paul writes the book of Romans and says it this way. So you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ or to God in Christ Jesus. Now, like I said, memorize that verse. Write that verse on your refrigerator or wherever you write stuff. I don't know. Heather used to write verses on our, our wall in our basement. Uh, and it was a great way when you're doing laundry and you're looking at these verses that say, Jesus wept and you're doing laundry. No, it wasn't that one. I was just kidding. Uh, verses 18 through 21. What we see here is Paul beginning, remember he's defending his ministry. His ministry of reconciliation is, is the word he uses over and over. Look at those verses real quick. Scan. How many times do you see the word reconciliation? It's a number of times, right? He shifts from what Christ has done back to his apostleship in these verses. His apostleship is part of God's plan of reconciling the world. It's God's initiative. It's God who, who, who's the one who powers it. It's, it's, it's God's ministry of reconciliation, and he's become an agent of reconciliation. Now, the word reconciliation, uh, the Greek word that's used that we translate in, the, in this passage, either the noun reconciliation or the verb to reconcile, they're two different Greek words with the same root, um, really just means broken relationship. And, and, and the broken relationship is broken because of God's doing, but because of our sinful fallen state. God cannot be reconciled to sin because he's a perfect holy God, but he does not turn away from sinner in disgust. Instead, while we were still sinners, God acted in love. 
to bring an end to hostility, and to bring about peace, real peace. Sometimes we think about peace, and sometimes we, in our homes we think about peace as just like, like a, a ceasefire of hostility. But there's real peace that takes place. It's not some uneasy ceasefire. There's real deep peace. Now, Paul actually talks about reconciliation in another passage that's very famous, probably even more robust in terms of reconciliation, and and he couples it with justification. Romans chapter 5, Paul really lays it out there. He switches in verses 1 through 9. He's talking about justification, which is a legal term, something that happens as a result of what Christ has done on the cross, that we can have Christ's righteousness. We call it imputed righteousness, that he lived a life as a substitute and died as a substitute, and his righteousness is our righteousness when we put our faith in him. It's a legal term. A judge, well, we'll talk about it in a second, but then he switches in verses 10 through 11 in Romans to reconciliation. Just, I just want to illustrate this idea of relationship that takes place because justification is absolutely a legal term. A judge can acquit uh, someone who stands accused and not build any kind of relationship there. And yes, God has justified us, but it's more than just that. There is reconciliation. There was, we were once separated, and now we've been brought into a right relationship. That's what reconciliation does. The judge, the judge who, who justifies or who acquits doesn't say, hey, come to my house. That's something altogether different. See, God does not just make an, a, a bookkeeping alteration and drops, dropping the charges against us. He offers himself in friendship. He offers himself in friendship even when we're hostile to him. And some of you are already thinking ahead, like, where's Jerome going with this? And what does this have to do with my marriage? We'll get there. Reconciliation, offering friendship, even in the face of hostility, maybe you're starting to pick up some of this idea of reconciliation. Paul is, a, Paul is defending his ministry of reconciliation, but more than just that, he's actually being a reconciler to those who have an issue with him in the church of Corinth. And we too have to do more than just proclaim what God has done, but be agents of reconciliation. Now we get to verse 20, and here's where I really want to camp out. Here's where I really see how this affects our marriage. It's not a passage specifically addressing marriage, but it has huge implications for your marriage and your relationships. Let me read it from the New Living Translation, which is what I read. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. But if you, your translation, if you have more formal equivalent, the ESV, for instance, the NASB, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So there's actually the word reconciliation that shows up an additional time from when I read it originally. Come back to God, be reconciled to God. Why would Paul, who's writing to Christians in Corinth who have been reconciled when they put their faith in Jesus, tell them they need to be reconciled? He's writing to the Corinthian church. You, you Christians who've accepted Jesus, have been justified and reconciled and regenerated, be reconciled to God. Remember earlier I said it was the fact that they were not living out or they were failing to live out exactly who they were in Christ that caused some of the problems that they were having. See, Paul 
knew something that I, I mentioned earlier, that we kind of live between the now and the not yet. You are completely righteous when you accept Jesus Christ. His righteousness is imputed to you, but yet you know your life isn't exactly righteous. Am I correct? We are between the now and the not yet. We stand righteous and reconciled, but yet we're still a work in progress. None of us have arrived. See, reconciliation is an event when you place your faith in Jesus and a process. Let me read it this way from one author. To the degree that we live for ourselves, which we saw in verse 15, we are selfish sinners, married to sinners. To that degree, we, need, we still need to be reconciled to God since in some way we live for ourselves every day. We need to be reconciled daily to God in confession and repentance. This morning I was getting ready uh, and I was actually praying a prayer of repentance. And I know some of us, depending on your church background, you think repentance is like weeping and wailing at the front of the church. It, it, I was brushing my teeth or something and I was actually thinking about the big price sticker in front of my face. And I was like, God, I guess I'm a control freak. I want to be in charge of my life. I want to make the call. I want that Toyota, that Toyota Tacoma. And it was a moment of repentance, like, forgive me, Lord. Like, that little thing just reminded me of just how much I like to be in control, how like, I like to sit on the throne. I still want that Toyota Tacoma or the Tundra, either one. Give me a Toyota with a T, I'll take it. All right. But that's, that's that reconciliation. It wasn't even like, Lord, I have, that, that's, like, that's repentance. I didn't say I made some great sin. I didn't step out on my wife or cheat my taxes and Lord, forgive me. But there was a moment of repentance just by knowing who I am on an everyday basis that I'm selfish and self-centered. If I only wait for the big moments to pray that prayer, <laughs> I mean, we pray those prayers in the small moments when we're aware, when we're honest with ourselves. And so now we're gonna get to our marriages. Now we'll get to relationships. Because I look at this passage and I think, this is a model Paul is saying, here's how we should relate to God rightly. And here's a model for our marriages. You see, the first commandment. What's the, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment kind of defines the second commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. Like, does it make sense that our relationship with God would set and model what it should be with our relationship with our spouse? I think, I, think, I think it does. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. There are some similarities there, and it, why, why would it be anything less? Why would there any be, be any less standard? See, just like when we put our faith in Jesus, we made that one-time thing. There's the now and not yet. There's a now and not yet in our marriages. On December 11th, 1999, just before Y2K, just in case. Heather and I made vows to each other to live in love together. And over the last 21-something years, 21, 22, 21, 21 years, happy Valentine's Day, babe. You look nice. Uh, but over that time, 
I can't tell you that we arrived and we've lived in love for 21 years every single day in those tiny moments. We made the now, but not yet. We're still working on the not yet. We're still in process. We're still becoming. And if that's the true of how we live in, our, in relationship to God, like I'm reconciled and I'm in right relationship, but yet daily I find a place of, of repentance. Daily I find a place of confession. God, I'm a selfish jerk. And I haven't done anything that's really that bad. Nothing that anybody will notice. I ought to extend that to my wife too, that I'm a selfish jerk. I was giving you a chance to say amen, babe, but okay, thank you. Uh, See, we don't coast in our relationship with God hoping that we'll become more Christ-like. Neither should we coast in our relationship with our spouses hoping that things will get better when things are bad. A relationship between one perfect, all-powerful, all-loving, all-gracious being and one really terrible human requires that reconciliation kind of daily. Well, what does a relationship between two terribly selfish humans require? Reconciliation daily. Not big, like, see, I think here's, we think of reconciliation as like something really bad happened and we're sitting with the pastor in his office and he's trying to like mediate some reconciliation. It doesn't have to always be so grand. Honestly, your marriage needs reconciliation daily, not just when things go bad. You can't coast in marriage. There needs to be an intentionality in the little moments, in the ordinary moments, in those common moments. Remember at the beginning of this message, I said you could sow seeds of words and actions that are, that are selfish, and your spouse may be just so accustomed to that, they don't even recognize it. But it begins to eat away and eat away at the relationship. A lifestyle of reconciliation. Typically, things don't get bad in a marriage in an instant. Sometimes there are instant things that destroy and devastate. But typically, it's not that way. The, the, the atmosphere, the, the character of a marriage is not made in one grand event. Things go bad progressively. Things, at the same time, become sweet and beautiful progressively. The development and the deepening of the bad or the sweet and beautiful are things that are happen on a daily basis, those ordinary things that we don't think too much about and maybe our spouse doesn't even think much about it. The problem is we really aren't intentional sometimes, huh? We think, we desire, we say, we do things that we shouldn't. And because of that, our marriage needs reconciliation daily and not just when things go bad. So what does that look like? Let me give you three things to walk away with on what that looks like. Three takeaways. First of all, live with a harvest mentality. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, 7, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God, you will always harvest what you plant. We call this the, the law of the harvest. There is an organic relationship that exists between the seeds that you plant and the fruit that you harvest. If you plant peach pits, you're gonna get peaches. And if you get anything else, then something's wrong. If you plant tobacco and tomatoes together, you'll get tobacco. It's a weird thing from the Simpsons, just trust me. So I've heard, I've never watched the Simpsons. 
I'm just kidding. I'm a selfish liar. Okay, anyways. Listen, there's, there is a consistency in this organic connection, this relationship. The seeds and the words that you plant, the actions you plant, are gonna, reduce, are gonna produce a fruit. They're gonna produce a harvest. Every day you will harvest some relational plant from the seeds and words that you planted in the past. And every day you're planting more seeds of words and actions whose harvest you'll reap in the future. Most of these seeds, like I've mentioned already, are small. They may not even be on the radar of your spouse. But if you plant a thousand seeds and they grow up into trees, then you have a forest that changes the entire environment. Changes the environment of your marriage and your relationships. See, a harvesting mentality, a harvest mentality means that you live with an awareness that, that you're planting a forest that you're going to build your house in the middle of that forest. Plant wise. Second thing I would say is live with an investment mentality. We saw this in our series on money last month. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat and rust destroys where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. That was that key verse of like, man, what is it that you really treasure? Because your heart's gonna go there. We live to experience the things that we treasure and we set our hearts upon. We act to get those things that we treasure and to hold on to those things that we treasure. An argumentative, <laughs> it's just a moment. That moment where you argue and you press the argument, and I know nothing about that, and you argue your spouse into a corner, you're gonna reap. You're gonna you're gonna get back the investment on that. But the reason we do that sometimes, and so I've heard, is because my treasure is being right. My treasure is not a God honoring marriage. My treasure is not my wife. My treasure is not the Lord and how He wants me to be. My treasure is being right in that moment. If you value your house being immaculately clean and your spouse is not even comfortable in your home, you too will reap the, the return on that investment. Have an investment mentality. Ask, your thing, ask yourself, what are those things that are valuable to me and how, how are they shaping my marriage? What kind of investment am I making? Because you'll reap the return. Third is this, live with a grace mentality. I, um, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of proud that I've now delivered two sermons about marriage and never once touched a passage about marriage. I'm gonna tell my friends about it who are preachers. Like, do that, buddy. But listen, there are marriage passages and they're beautiful. They set a great standard. They, they instruct us on what a God-honoring marriage should look like. But if we're not careful, those same passages become the law. 
and our marriages become law-based marriages, where when our, when our spouse fails to uphold that standard, we begin to use it against them to show them how much they failed to live up to biblical standards. I don't know about you, but we didn't like the law in the first place when it came to the law. We needed grace, right? So why would I make my, my marriage a place of law instead of grace-based marriage? The principles and the wisdom of Scripture are the best standard. But it's not, it's not that we don't even, it's not that we need to know the truth. Oftentimes we know the truth. It goes back to last week. Our hearts are selfish. We are sinners married to sinners. Knowing that I should love my wife like Christ loved the church isn't enough because my heart wants to do what it wants to do. My heart wants what it, what it wants. A grace-based marriage, a grace mentality recognizes that we too are recipients of grace and we extend that same grace. Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna tell you more stories about my family and my life. You'll just have to guess. <laughs> See, if you're gonna live a lifestyle of reconciliation daily, like we do with our relationship with the Lord, if you're gonna do that in your marriages and your relationships, you live with a harvest mentality, an investment mentality, a grace mentality. Each of these requires some honest personal humility. And each of these calls us to be reconciled both to God and to one another again and again and again. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you. We thank you for your word, Lord, that you've revealed who you are, what it means to be your follower, what it means to have a relationship with you, that you took the initiative to, to reach out to us. And now as we walk with you and grow in our faith, God, I pray that you would indeed strengthen our walk with you, strengthen our homes, strengthen our marriages. May, may we, honest humility reconcile with you daily our selfish heart and we do the same with our spouses and those other relationships we thank you Lord in Jesus name Amen